won, won Roosevelt, uh, won landslide victories uh, with the New Deal. He still had a large contingent of very conservative Democratic senators in the South and some even in the West. When Reagan uh, came in in the 80s, there were still a good number of moderate or even liberal Republicans uh, left uh, throughout the country. Uh, it really has only been uh, in recent years when we've seen this this real ideological sorting uh, and purging uh, to some great degree. From Heterodox Academy, this is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. Conversations with scholars and authors, ideas from diverse viewpoints and perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. Kevin Cruz, historian at Princeton University, is my guest today. He's the author of White Flight, Atlanta and the Making of Modern Conservatism, published in 2005, and One Nation Under God, How Corporate America Invented Christian America, published in 2015. He and his colleague at Princeton, Julian Zelizer, have a new book coming out January 9th titled Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. We'll be talking about that book in today's episode. Because the book covers four decades of American history, I extended this episode so it's one hour long instead of the typical 30 minutes. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to the show. I'd like to start by asking you about uh, the course that this book is based on. When you teach this course, what part of this segment of history do undergraduates find most intriguing? That's a great question. Uh, so uh, this is a course that, so when I got to Princeton back in 2000, I had a course that was U.S. since 1920. And that was a course that I think was probably designed in like 1960. Uh, and so uh, as uh, there was, it was already kind of a lot of uh, extra material to, to, to fit in there. And as the years went on and more and more happened after I started in 2000, you know, 9-11 and the war in Iraq and Katrina and the financial meltdown and all that, uh, I decided that it was time to finally break the course into two. And Julian Zelizer had joined the faculty by then. So we, uh, we, we broke my old course in half at Watergate in 1974 and started teaching this new course together, uh, the U.S. since 1974. We did that for two years and now Julian does it on his own. And I'd say what really, um, I think what surprises students the most about this period uh, really is uh, just how quickly uh, things had changed. Uh, there are a lot of things that they have come to take for granted in their lives. Two of those would be they've, they've all grown up in a post 9-11 world. And so they can't imagine what life was like before that. Uh, and they've all grown up in a world of, of the internet, and they can't imagine what life was like before that. So to really to walk them back in both directions and get them to understand uh, the impact that several media revolutions have had on their lives, uh, but also uh, the, the way in which uh, politics, uh, both foreign and domestic, uh, have radically changed over the last four decades and things that they take as the norm uh, were actually once revolutionary ideas, uh, things like uh, tax cuts and uh, in the way in which uh, the, the kind of the Republican Party has oriented itself. That that's all a new change. Uh, that so so their entire world uh, is one that they've both taken for granted, and then they suddenly realize has a history, uh, and that is something that I think is is incredibly um, uh, interesting for them. What about the Cold War? These students were born after the Cold War. Are they surprised to learn about what it entailed? And that I think is the, it was the hardest part for so for Julian and I when we teach this, and when we wrote about it too, to really to capture the Cold War tensions, especially in the Reagan period when we were both, you know, young kids, and so we write about things like 
the Able Archer Scare in 1983, or more memorably, The Day After, uh, that uh, that famous ABC movie that uh, kind of brought home the horrors of nuclear war. Things that we had grown up with and experienced ourselves uh, are completely foreign uh, to to the, to the students we teach today. Again, as you know, they were born after the Cold War ended. Uh, they were born even after the, the, the peace of the 90s now. So to, to, get them, uh, to give them a sense of how that old structure crumbled, the chaos that came in its wake, or at least the uncertainty that came in its wake about what was going to happen now that America was the, uh, you know, the, the quote-unquote only superpower remaining, and then what happened post-9-11, uh, when uh, that, uh, what George H.W. Bush had called the New World Order, was itself upended again. Uh, it, it really is a state of, uh, of, of, of confusion for the country. Um, and it's important, I think, for students to, to realize that, that there have been several, um, not in their lifetimes, but at least in the lifetimes of their professors, have been several um, a fundamental reordering uh, of the global structure. Um, yeah, I know my students are surprised when I talk about how there was a point when many Democrats were more conservative than the average Republican and many Republicans were more liberal than the average Democrat. We tend to find that surprising too. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's something that I think is really hard to do these days where they've come of age in a world in which, uh, you know, the, the two parties are very clearly and neatly for them laid out on ideological spectrums. Republicans are on the right. Democrats are the center to the left. And, and it seems it's hard for them to understand, but it was not so neat. And so, uh, and actually, they, they ultimately find it comforting to know uh, that uh, this golden age of bipartisanship that they constantly hear about was actually largely just a result of the fact that both parties were ideologically diverse. And so, if you were a liberal looking to get liberal legislation passed, you had to look inside your party and outside your party for liberals. If you were a conservative, you looked inside your party and outside your party, no matter what party it was. So, there was always naturally a bipartisan veneer to these sort of things, but they were just as ideologically rigid as they are today. They just they weren't as, as neatly sorted into the parties. So students, when they discover that today, they, they sort of take some solace in that of, of oh, we've always been uh, this sort of in some ways, this sort of ideologically uh, divided. It's just that it used to have the veneer of bipartisanship on top of that. Now, you begin the book with four crises. The first is a crisis of legitimacy. And I think people generally recognize that Watergate uh, created this crisis of legitimacy. But when it comes to the other three, the crisis of confidence, the crisis of identity, and the crisis of equality, how did you decide to to pull those themes out of uh, history since 1974? Well, those uh, th those titles uh, uh, maybe seem neater than the uh, the categories are because what we really wanted to get into were the ways in which uh, the country is riven along lines of politics, uh, the way in which the old economy crumbles, the way in which uh, old racial uh, divisions uh, crumble and new ones rise in their place, and last and and perhaps most importantly, the way in which old assumptions about gender and sexuality really become transformed. And so the 70s are a moment where all these old certainties are in flux. And, and so we wanted to capture each of those uh, and, and to try to uh, try to complicate them um, in, in, in what we hoped would be interesting ways. So that early one on the, uh, on the political crisis that comes out of Watergate, that's a story that a lot of people have written before. But what we did is we 
wrote that story about Watergate and its aftermath and the Ford administration and the kind of the, um, um, uh, the shortcomings of the Carter administration too. That's a familiar story, but we paired that uh, in that chapter with a section on the changes that happen in the media. Uh, and they're driven also by Watergate. And so the rise of Woodward and Bernstein and the new vogue of investigative reporting is an important one that we tell. Uh, but we also talk about the kind of the, um, uh, the, the challenges to the, uh, you know, the big three TV networks and the major newspapers that starts in the 70s. And so we have this process of the, the fracturing of the media landscape uh, that starts to take place uh, in the 70s. We've got a great, I love the quote we found in there from, uh, from Jan Werner, uh, the head of Rolling Stone, who is uh, who's a liberal, but he's pining for this new landscape in which we'll have all these different voices. And he and he explicitly says, you know, if we had a conservative media network, wouldn't that be great? I think he would he would have a different opinion of of, of what that conservative media landscape has yielded today. But there's this moment in the '70s where things are fracturing and falling apart, uh, and there are are new opportunities here for change. And so we wanted to track that across politics, across the economy, across race, across gender and sexuality. And you talk about uh, two movies, at least two, Network and Nashville. And I love Nashville myself as an immigrant. I, I learned a lot about America from watching Nashville. Uh, do you assign those movies to your undergraduates? You know, I haven't assigned the, the full movies. Uh, what we tend to do is we tend to show clips. And I have uh, we've shown uh, clips from Network, or at least when I co- co-taught the course we did. I don't know if Julian's still doing it. Um, Nashville's not one I have, I've assigned, but Nashville holds a special place in my heart because I'm from Nashville. Uh, and so a lot of those scenes, you know, the, 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 uh, the performance at the Parthenon, um, uh, there's a scene inside a church that actually was the church I grew up in. It's a Catholic church and they pass it off as a bath, uh, as a Baptist one. Um, but those movies, I think, and it gives you another sense of what we try to do, do in the book to escape the kind of the, the dry political narrative. We often use movies like that as a way to uh, capture a national mood. So what Nashville does for us is it's all about uh, the uncertainty and the chaos as the country is approaching the bicentennial. That's a big theme of the movie. You've got this um, invisible, never seen third party candidate who is going around basically calling all politicians of both parties crooks. Uh, Network is, a, is an even bigger one for us just because it's it's such a fantastic film and it perfectly captures um, uh, the coming insanity of the media landscape. I mean, the uh, the kind of the reality TV tropes that are in there, the channeling of anger through media, uh, things that, that really come into focus in later decades uh, are, are all really kind of clearly seen uh, in this satire in 1976. Do you feel like there are movies set in the 80s and 90s and 2000s that are similar to Nashville and or Network in capturing the essence of those decades? The 70s really are a magical decade in terms of, of the filmmaking. I don't think there's anything quite like those films in terms of their social commentary. There are great ones uh, in the 80s and 90s and beyond. And so, um, you know, if you look at the 80s, uh, some of the movies we talk about there are uh, things like Wall Street uh, which really does satirize the you know the Gordon Gecko, uh, greed is good mantra, or um, uh, war games, right. um, uh, and again the day after which you mentioned earlier are movies that really um, uh, tap into the um, uh, uh, the Cold War tension uh, of the moment I think incredibly well. Um, uh, in the nineties, I'm trying to think of something that that would that would take. Uh, a similar place that there's more of a, a it's kind of a return to the escapist blockbuster in the nineties. So we don't quite have those, those social commentary movies. I'm sure if I thought about it, I would, I would have some, but nothing comes to me off the, the top of my head. Now jumping to the bit about Jimmy Carter, um, 
the candidate in Nashville, the candidate you don't see, seems like maybe he was modeled on Carter. And you talk about the Carter presidency um, and how he marketed himself as an outsider. In some ways, Donald Trump also marketed himself as an outsider. But one contrast we see is the way the Democratic Party reacted to Carter is different from the way the Republican Party has reacted to Trump. Can you talk a bit about what changed over that period? Oh, that's a good. That's a good point. Uh, they are clearly both outsiders, and 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 Carter really does. Uh, and he, even before Watergate, he's laying down these roots of of seeing uh, that 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 his lack of DC experience is actually going to be a plus. And this becomes a, a steady trope over the coming years. You can see it in terms of how Reagan runs, how Clinton runs, how George W. Bush runs. Uh, even to some small degree, even though he's uh, running as a senator, uh, as Barack Obama runs. Uh, and, but certainly uh, Trump uh, makes the most of this. So that outsider theme of coming in from uh, from beyond the political gridlock uh, and shaking things up is certainly a theme we see uh, uh, throughout the book. Uh, now, in terms of, of, of the Carter presidency and the relationship to the party, uh, it is radically different. And I think the, what happens here is that Carter comes of power uh, uh, in the wake of Watergate, uh, in the wake of the 1974 landslide uh, election of, of House uh, and Senate Democrats. Uh, in 76, he uh, unseats an incumbent president. And in many ways, it feels like this is going to be the new norm and Democrats are going to be in charge. The idea that the Republicans would, would come surging back four years later with Reagan is far removed from most people's uh, awareness. And so I think the Democrats feel that they can afford uh, a little bit of purity politics in, in terms of, of, of what they want. And, and Carter is deviating from the norm on a lot of traditional uh, policies. He's embracing early regulation. Uh, he's, uh, he's calling for, you know, he, he is the, the coming out party for, the, for, uh, for evangelicals in national politics. So there are a lot of ways in which Carter doesn't fit with the, the, the kind of the, the broader swath of the Democratic Party in 76 and why you have the challenge made by Ted Kennedy in 1980, is that the Democrats are uh, a feel um, uh, that 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 they're going to win no matter what, basically that this is their moment, uh, and so why not have somebody who better reflects the Democratic Party? You don't have that with Trump these days. Um, you saw there was a you know some spirited challenges to him in the 2016 primaries, but once he got the party nomination, uh, and certainly once he was elected president. Uh, the rest of the party has completely fallen in line. It is clearly his party now uh, in a way in which the Democratic Party was never truly Jimmy Carter's party uh, back in the 1970s. Uh, and that both insulates him from challenges to some great degree, but it also means that when the collapse comes, uh, as it uh, seemingly uh, is, is on its way uh, for the administration, uh, that means that the uh, the party itself is going to go down too. Uh, they're going to really own this. Um, uh, it's going to look more like uh, the Republicans in 1974 going down with Nixon uh, than uh, than anything that happened with the Democrats in in 1980. And another thing you talk about in the 1970s chapter is white flight, and you've written an entire book about that. I'm sure some of our listeners have have read that book. I have. Um, that book was about 10 years old now. Given the research you've done since then, is, when you reflect on that book, is there anything you would change? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I would say I have not – I've spoken more about white flight in the past year than I did in the first decade after it was published, um, which is uh, – you know, for an author, it's nice to have people talk about your book. I would rather they not 
feel the need to talk about the themes that are in that book today. Uh, because what it means is that um, uh, some of the issues that I talked about there, particularly early on in the book, uh, have come roaring back. And and so you've read it, and some of your, your listeners may have read it too. Uh, in the early part of that book, I talk about how white supremacy in the uh, early, well, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, white supremacy has to undergo a radical series of makeovers where they have to hide the uh, the truly uh, outrageously uh, explicitly racist statements that they previously made and learn to speak instead in a more respectable language of white rights, of white responsibilities, of property rights, of taxpayer rights, of things like that. Uh, and so the course of that um, uh, second chapter of the book is one that really traces um, the change in white politics going from an explicitly neo-Nazi organization called the Colombians into the Ku Klux Klan, into um, more respectable homeowners associations where they didn't wear brown shirts or white hoods, but just wore their clothes as taxpayers and neighbors and citizens. And so that book really, from that chapter on, traces the, you know, the way in which racism becomes respectable. Well, we've seen in the last few couple of years the resurgence of literal neo-Nazis, uh, the revival of the Ku Klux Klan, of, of kind of an outspoken white supremacist politics that is, from the president's own lips, deemed um, uh, to be filled with very fine people. Uh, and so that's a radical change. And so if I were to have to go back and uh, rewrite White Flight now, I think I would have to change one of the, the, the fundamental arguments of that, which is that racism becomes much more um, uh, subtle and thereby becomes stronger. Uh, it's not subtle anymore. Uh, and, and so uh, in a lot of ways, uh, it's really been uh, a bit shocking to me to see that when we've come back to this place I thought we'd left in the late 40s and early 50s. And there's another contrast too, which is the nature of suburbs has changed. The the suburb that elected Newt Gingrich to Congress is now about 50% Democratic. Is that something you would also write about? Absolutely. And so there it's 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 a reminder that, uh, and this I think would actually underscore something I, I emphasize in the book, which is that it's not about uh, the place itself. It's not that the suburbs are inherently um, more conservative. It's, it's in the process of fleeing to the suburbs that um, the, the suburbanites in the 1970s and 1980s really create um, uh, their conservative politics that, that lead them to elect someone like Gingrich. Those politics are still there. They've just moved on again. They've moved on uh, out to uh, what we would call the exurbs, uh, the next layer out. Uh, and they're certainly alive and well there. And that's something I tracked in the book that the the, the hottest, um, um, uh, the, the brightest, reddest spots uh, for George W. Bush in 2000 were these exurb counties uh, further out. Uh, the suburbs that have been left behind in 2000 had gone from being, you know, 99% uh, white like they were in 1970 down to about 70% white. Uh, and they're much more diverse today. Uh, and in fact, a lot of those inner ring suburbs are um, uh, not just uh, ethnically diverse in terms of, of, of older communities that have been there, but we see newer waves of immigrants. That's the first place they head. It used to be they would head to central cities. Now they head to these inner ring suburbs. So they're incredibly diverse. And with that diversity has come a change in their politics. So uh, the suburbs have certainly uh, not, are no longer the endpoint of white flight, uh, but white flight is still out there. It's just a process that is leading out to the exurbs. 
There are some themes related to race and gender that have remained constant, but one thing that has changed is attitudes towards abortion among evangelicals, which you cover in the book. Can you talk a bit about how evangelicals went rather quickly from being rather tolerant of abortion to you being anti-abortion, just like Catholics were? That section of the book uh, rests on a, on a terrific a book by uh, a scholar named Neil J. Young. The book is called We Gather Together, and it's a fascinating study. And we, we cribbed heavily uh, from his findings. Because what Neil shows in that book and what we, what we explain in ours is that we've – again, this is something that would shock my students today. We think of uh, evangelicals and fundamentalists as being stridently opposed to the liberalization of abortion. Uh, and truth, when Roe happened, uh, they were actually strongly for it. And so you can see this in the late 60s and early 70s, um, uh, before the real right to life movement has taken off uh, in the late 70s and become a mainstay of the religious right. But a decade before that, in the late 60s and early 70s, you see a large number of very prominent evangelical and fundamentalist leaders uh, coming out in support of the liberalization of abortion. Um, so Billy Graham uh, says that he is a strong proponent of what he calls Planned Parenthood. Uh, he, he he strongly supports the liberalization of abortion laws. There's a reason uh, his home state of North Carolina uh, liberalizes its laws. Uh, the head of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, comes out uh, in favor of this. And in this, it's not a controversial stance. Uh, as Neil's book shows, uh, polls of Southern Baptist uh, of Sunday school teachers, of preachers, of people who you would think of as kind of the, the backbone of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, they are polling 70, 80 percent in favor of the liberalization of abortion. Uh, and the reason they do this is that they strongly see abortion as the Catholic issue. Uh, they see it as wholly bound up in the teachings of the Catholic Church. And this is a period in which uh, Baptists in particular uh, but many Protestants are still um, strongly hostile uh, to the political stances of the Catholic Church. And so it's only over uh, the course of the later 70s, with the rise of a more ecumenical religious right, one that tries to make uh, connections between evangelicals and fundamentalists and conservative uh, Catholics, conservative Mormons, uh, and, and even some conservative Jews, to, uh, to find a common ground uh, there uh, that will unite them politically. And it's at that point that people like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson start speaking out finally uh, against abortion uh, and making it a mainstay of their movement. But it's a, it's a change that happens uh, with almost uh, whipsaw speed over the course of the 70s from, uh, you know, from 1974, where these groups are strongly in favor of abortion rights to 1978, 79, where they're strongly against. Uh, it's, it's a remarkable switch. And uh, another issue that you talk about is this third, the rise of the religious right in general. You've written a book about that. Um, but religion has always played a role in politics in almost every country on the planet. What is unique about the religious right in America since the 1970s? That's a great question. Uh, I, I would say, well, following off that, that answer I just gave about abortion, uh, what's really remarkable is uh, the way in which it becomes um, politically very sharply conservative, but religiously very ecumenical. Uh, and so this is the, this is the, uh, the thrust behind, um, in fact, the, the reason for the name, the moral majority, uh, is, is they realize out there is a majority 
that believes in the principles of the Decalogue, basically the, the principles of the Ten Commandments. And once you reduce uh, a polit- or religion to that vague level, it's easy to find a common cause. And so what's ironic about, or maybe unusual about the religious uh, 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 drive in politics uh, from the, the 80s on is that at some levels it's largely divorced from scripture. Uh, and so it's not, um, you know, Baptists advancing the Baptist line or Catholics advancing the Catholic line. It's rather this broad, vaguely uh, religious, um, um, but kind of uh, incredibly capacious in terms of the denominations swept up in this uh, movement. Uh, but one that moves in directions that, um, to, to some, don't seem to be rooted in scripture at all. You know, the the, the campaigns against uh, gays and lesbians. Uh, there's not uh, a lot of New Testament lines about gays and lesbians. Uh, uh, there's not a lot on uh, on abortion, uh, uh, and on a lot of things that would have maybe skewed uh, these uh, true believers uh, to liberal policy measures. Talking about taking care of the poor, the environment, or things like that, uh, are largely ignored. Uh, so it's a it's a broadly ecumenical movement, and that actually uh, gives it its real power and sweep because you papered over the divisions that had long kept these different religious communities at odds, and instead said, "Well, what generally unites us?" And it's this vague. It's what I call in, in my um, in that book, One Nation Under God. I call a a lowest common denomination uh, religion. And so once you've got that kind of vague sense of religiosity, uh, that's enough to kind of unite these different camps that ordinarily would have been at war with one another. In the chapter Turning Right, you talk about Joseph Coors and Richard Mellon Scafe, two figures who have had an outsized influence on American politics, but whom few Americans have heard of. How do you approach those two figures when you teach this class? We approach them uh, as, as, as part of a, uh, a story about the rebuilding of conservatism, uh, is that there had been, uh, again, in the wake of Watergate, uh, and we may be coming back to this now, uh, who knows? But in the wake of Watergate, there was a real sense that the Republican Party was dead, that Nixon had, and, and because of the party's loyalty to Nixon, uh, had destroyed it all. Um, uh, a Republican operative says, you know, you're, you're never going to be able to market the word Republican again. It's, it's like the Edsel or Typhoid Mary. It's doomed. And so there's a movement actually to, to start a new, what they were going to call a conservative party, uh, and people like William Rusher, the publisher of National Review, is behind this. They talk about in 1976 having Ronald Reagan and George Wallace run on a new conservative ticket. Uh, that actually probably would have done quite well. Uh, and so what we talk about when we talk about people like Scafe and Coors uh, and the other ones who, f- who really fuel this rise of the conservative think tank is the way in which conservatism rebuilds itself. In the 70s, and it does so with those new think tanks, which help provide a funding, but more importantly, I think direction for national politics. Uh, they provide these, uh, the Heritage Foundation um, uh, pioneers these one-page uh, papers, uh, which which really help orient uh, uh, political figures, especially new congressmen, who don't have a lot of time to read all these bills, to orient them in a conservative direction. So the, the people like uh, these think tanks are important in terms of um, providing uh, an intellectual direction for conservatism. Uh, groups like the Religious Right that we just mentioned and other new right organizations are important for providing sort of the, the grassroots support for this. 
Uh, and then it all comes together, um, uh, again, as people like Russia had hoped, under the leadership of someone like Ronald Reagan, who's able to patch together these different new um, uh, almost resistance movements uh, to, to, to the establishment of the 1970s and patch them together into a new coalition uh, that then becomes the winning uh, combination in 1980. When you talk about polarization, one of the figures you cite is Norm Ornstein. Yes, you cite Norm Ornstein and Thomas Mann, and I've had Norm on the show before. Um, their narrative is that the Republican Party has, uh, in their words, become, quote unquote, an insurgent outlier that does not acknowledge the legitimacy of the Democratic Party. Do you feel that argument is is right? Do you feel like they, they get that right? Yeah, yeah. We, we rely on them quite a lot, Amiem, because we really find their analysis uh, uh, to be dead on. Uh, and the fact that it comes from um, uh, Ornstein and Mann, who have a, you know a long, um, obviously a long history of reporting uh, on Washington D.C., but also um, I think a well-earned a reputation as being a fair judge uh, outside of the kind of the the, the, the partisan noise uh, that we see from both sides of being a fair judge of what's going on, for them to have come to that conclusion. Uh, that that they did in that last book is 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 really remarkable, but but we think ultimately uh, dead on. And I think what we've seen since the publication of that book uh, only emphasizes uh, just how right they were. If, if we're talking about uh, the Republican Party increasingly becoming uh, an outlier, uh, which is um, uh, and, and in many fundamental ways, it, it's hard for observers to say this, but in many fundamental ways, hostile to fundamental values of democracy. Uh, I think we've seen that in recent years. We've seen that in the States. We saw it in North Carolina. We've seen it recently in um, moves made in, in Wisconsin and, and Michigan, uh, where uh, the, the Republican Party lost uh, the, the election in, 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 in different ways and then went about uh, a process of sort of assaulting the earth to make sure that the Democrats uh, who won uh, were hamstrung from the start. To, to subvert the will of the voters. Uh, so I think we've seen uh, the, the kind of the man Ornstein thesis really uh, play out in very prominent ways uh, in the last election cycle. Speaking of Wisconsin and North Carolina and um, things that are happening at the federal level, some people, including Madeleine Albright and uh, Tim Snyder, among others, have talked about fascism or totalitarianism as appropriate ways to think of these movements? Do you think those are appropriate terms to use here? I, I've personally shied away from those terms um, simply because I, I think that they're, I'm not sure how productive they are for the conversation. Um, and so while I can see why others would use those terms, um, I worry that they almost um, have the opposite effect of, of rather than informing people of, of shutting down the conversation. So I personally haven't used those. Uh, fascism, uh, I haven't used. Um, authoritarian, uh, I think, is, 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 is certainly clear. Um, Anti-democratic, I think it's coming into focus. So um, uh, I have a, a skittishness, um, perhaps unwarranted, about using that term myself. But I, I think um, uh, those who do are finding themselves on 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 stronger and stronger ground uh, with each passing month. Do you think there are some states that are bipartisan enough that those changes won't occur right now? No, nothing comes to mind. I mean, I, the ones that I would have previously held out as offering some hope are precisely the ones where we're seeing this hardest turn. And so, it, and I think it's because they, these are states that, that could be considered purple, right? In, in the in the red blue. Right. Um, a, a perspective. Uh, and because they're on that tipping point, 
that you've seen um, uh, the, the state Republican parties in, in, in these various places uh, play such hardball uh, is, is that because that um, uh, makes such a huge difference uh, and, and they can, they, they're worried about them tipping back uh, to blue. And so they're doing all they can to hold them down. E.J. Dion has a book uh, that covers roughly the same period as yours, and his argument there is that conservatives have become steadily angrier because the Republican Party has promised things that they can they can't really deliver. What do you think about that argument? I think that's right. I think that's right, and and I, I think and this is where the, the the part about the media, which is a huge through line that we have in the book, is I think so important because. Uh, those promises made by um, uh, by Republican officials, uh, promises to you know sort of magically stop uh, immigration or to um, uh, to recover a lost uh, industrial economy, um, as Trump tries to do now, uh, to, to to magically win a trade war. Those kind of things. Those promises are are made, uh, and they become uh, amplified. Um, by this right-wing media, with, you know, things like Fox News or, or conservative talk radio or, or internet sites like Breitbart now, uh, they become amplified by that. Um, um, but what happens is when the politicians um, back away from those promises, as they inevitably do, when they realize that they, uh, they can't outlaw abortion, uh, which is a classic one, the, 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 the religious right kept on being told that uh, they, you know, elect us and we'll, we'll undo Roe. Well, it's been there for, uh, you know, 45 years now. Uh, as these promises keep getting made, they get amplified by the media. But then once the politicians stop saying it, their words are still echoing through that media, right? And so the promises have been made and there's a new sort of demand on the part of this constituency uh, that they they were promised this, and they need to be uh, they need to be held accountable, uh, and so that has been something that we've seen uh, throughout uh, the last few decades of this uh, this tension between the conservative media, which is demanding a sort of uh, purity on these issues, and uh, these political leaders who back away. Now, one thing that has changed dramatically in the last two years is that President Trump made all of these promises. And now that he's backing away from them, he's actually not being held accountable by these conservative media forces. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, Fox News is has not, you know, flayed him alive for um, demanding that uh, Americans now pay for the wall that he insisted Mexico was going to pay for, right? Or, um, or or different changes that he's made in terms of um, or, or the, the success of the trade war, which they hyped endlessly, uh, has now um, uh, really come back to uh, 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 to haunt him in terms of the economic result. I think we're seeing this with stock market now. Uh, we're seeing this with with uh, you know uh, unemployment uh, as, as major factories are closing, like GM plants, and so. Um, uh, Normally, this would be a moment where the conservative media would then hold those figures accountable, as they did in the uh, in the nineties and the early two thousands with the Bush administration. And now they're really just kind of carrying water for him. And whatever he wants to do, uh, they're saying that's what he always said he would do. Uh, and so um, uh, that I think is perhaps going to hurt their credibility in the long term. But in the short term, it's really keeping people on the right in line with Trump, where they would have been in revolt uh, in a previous time. 
And you talk about scorched earth politics, maybe returning to Ornstein here, you talk about scorched earth politics when you're talking about um, Republican opposition to the stimulus bill and the Affordable Care Act. You note that the ACA was the first time any major piece of, I'm quoting here, the first time any major piece of domestic reform had passed on strictly partisan lines. Um, And that's even though the ACA was modeled on Romney care and a heritage foundation plan. Given that that was modeled on conservative plans, why do you think opposition to it was so stark? Well, so uh, Obama and 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 his supporters in Congress had modeled them on those conservative plans in the naive hope that there was some promise of uh, bipartisanship, uh, that they would be able to um, uh, that they would be able to to find conservative or maybe not conservative, but but moderate Republican voters to come over and support these Republican ideas. Uh, and that's clearly why they did it. That's why a third of the t- uh, of the stimulus were tax cuts previously um, um, proposed by Republican members of Congress. Uh, that's why the ACA was, as you noted, based in equal parts on what Mitt Romney had done in Massachusetts, and uh, and some ideas from from old Heritage Foundation uh, uh, think tank proposals. Uh, and so that was the goal was, was, we'll, you know, we'll meet the Republicans, uh, maybe not halfway, but a third of the way, at least we're using the, the, the numbers of the stimulus and, and that will win over uh, some, some support. What they didn't count on was, uh, the, the more hardball tactics of, um, uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate and Eric Cantor, uh, then in the house who explicitly told their caucuses, uh, that what this new president is trying to do is trying to win some um, some bipartisan uh, cred. Uh, and so what we can do is simply deny him that. We can break his promise to craft bipartisan solutions. We can break his promise for him simply by refusing to vote for anything he proposes. Uh, and that is a line explicitly laid out by both McConnell and Cantor in uh, late 2008, early 2009, uh, but they're going to hold their caucus uh, uh, united and in line. Uh, and it largely holds true. Uh, so the stimulus is, is, as you know, entirely on party lines. Uh, the, uh, the Obamacare vote, you get uh, what three Republican senators cross lines and are so vilified for it that one of them, Olympia Snow, retires from Congress afterwards saying that it's it's simply become too hostile. Arlen Specter switches to the Democratic Party, where he tries to make a new home there and ultimately fails. Um, and Susan Collins uh, hangs on uh, as the last one of these uh, uh, moderates. She's now the last moderate uh, Republican uh, in New England. I don't know if we would call her a moderate anymore. She seems to be voting increasingly in lockstep uh, with Trump. But she's the last of an old breed of, of Republican in the Northeast uh, that has been completely wiped out. Uh, in the last few years. Um, so what we've seen is that the parties have become much more uh, ideologically rigid. And it's not a both sides issue. There's much more diversity of thought, I think, as we saw in the Democratic primary of 2016 uh, on the Democratic side. But the Republicans have really become uh, obsessed with uh, a very narrow uh, and much more conservative uh, vision uh, than they had before. Uh, and so they're they're trying to hold together uh, internally, and anyone who is uh, who's not fallen in line with this is dismissed as a rhino, as a Republican in name only. Uh, and there's increasingly less and less space for those rhinos who are are what we would have previously thought of as moderate or even liberal Republicans. Uh, they don't exist anymore. 
Do you see any precedent for this in American politics? Not to this degree. I mean, we've we've seen a the, the steady march to the right in the Republican Party over previous decades, but there was still home for these moderate uh, northeastern Republicans, or these, or we used to have moderate Republicans in California as well. Uh, and both places, they've been largely, uh, largely wiped out. We didn't really see this with previous moves in which we had even, uh, you know, a president uh, coming in in uh, with massive supports. And then when when Roosevelt uh, won landslide victories uh, with the New Deal, he still had a large contingent, a very conservative uh, Democratic senators in the South uh, and some even in the West. Uh, when Reagan uh, came in in the 80s, there were still a good number of, of moderate or even liberal Republicans uh, left uh, throughout the country. Uh, it really has only been uh, in recent years when we've seen this, uh, this real ideological sorting uh, and purging uh, to some great degree. Now, one issue that's not covered in much detail in the book is foreign affairs. You don't talk much about Israel or the, the brokering of the Northern Ireland peace accords. Um, is there a reason you left that out of the book? Uh, purely for, uh, for matters of space. Um, uh, the, uh, to cover so much of four decades and, and 400 pages uh, was a tight task. And so there were invariably things that were uh, were left on the cutting room floor. And so, as much as we would have loved to go into um, uh, those issues, um, you know, uh, uh, the revolutions uh, in terms of the, the the fall of apartheid in South Africa would have been another one I would have would have loved to do. Uh, there was just simply not enough uh, room uh, to focus on that. Part of this, I think, comes from the fact that the courses we teach, we have a foreign policy course at Princeton, and so the courses we teach invariably focus more on domestic politics. Than they do on foreign policy, but Julian wrote a book on national security politics, uh, which would certainly uh, helped shape uh, our view of, of what uh, was meant by the end of the Cold War, uh, by the rise of the war on terror. Um, but those big sweeping transformations are the ones that get the bulk of the attention in terms of the foreign policy side, uh, and things like uh, Irish reunification uh, just uh, just didn't fit. And coming back to the topic of the media, we talked about network, um, but when it comes to contemporary social media, one thing that a lot of Americans are concerned about now is manipulation and um, deliberately fictionalized news. How do you prepare your students yeah. to deal with that world? That's a great question. I mean, at a certain level, I think we do what we've always done uh, as historians, which is to teach our students how to analyze evidence. Uh, and a key part of that is to to determine the veracity. Uh, but even once you've done that, is to uh, to really question uh, who is this aimed at? Uh, who are they? Who's speaking? Uh, what are their assumptions? Uh, what are they? What are their arguments? Uh, what's the reception? And so that fundamental approach that we would use to a a primary document from a hundred years ago, something they can use for a primary document uh, today. Uh, and But what they need to do is they need to do what they would do back then, which is then to put that individual piece of evidence uh, into a broader context. And if it doesn't make sense, if it seems uh, out of place, then to really interrogate why is that? And then is this uh, a, a valid piece of evidence? Is this verifiable? Do students express surprise when they learn about sources that they thought were reliable but then turn out not to be? Oh, always. I mean, the, the way in which anyone who, who would have you know, fallen for a – 
uh, maybe not an outright con, but you know, uh, um, uh, you know, an urban legend would is is always kind of surprised and always a little saddened to find out, but it's not true. So when I when I do when I talk about the uh, creation of the interstate highways, there's a common belief that uh, one mile out of every five miles of an interstate highway was made straight because the highways were sold as the national defense highways. And that straight part of the highway had to be there so jets could land in case of World War III. Right. Uh, and students, some students have always heard this. It's something they heard from their parents, their grandparents, whatever. And I'd say, actually, that's not true. I've been to the Eisenhower archives. That's, that's actually not uh, a real thing. But what that urban legend does, and, and this is where I, it is useful still, is to say, is to say look – People believe that because they knew these highways were linked to the Cold War, right? And so that's a, that's an argument I make in my my lectures about Eisenhower's domestic policies, about he could only get anything done if he framed it as supporting the Cold War. So look, the interstate highways were sold as a Cold War measure. That part about the jets in one mile being straight uh, out of every five uh, isn't true, but it actually the fact that so many people believe that or had heard that underscores the larger point about these are the national defense highways. So there's a way of using, uh, of kind of, you know, busting the myth, uh, as it were, but using uh, the creation of that myth. And why do people believe this in the first place uh, as a way of teaching the truth? And I come from a background that straddles social psychology and sociology. And one thing I've noticed in the transition from social psych to sociology is, is the ahistorical nature of a lot of the social psychological work on race. So if you were to recommend books to social psychologists and other social scientists who sometimes take an ahistorical approach and want to understand the history of race and politics in America better, are there three or four books just on the topic of race that you would recommend to those people? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I would say George Fredrickson's work on race and racism. In fact, I'm, I'm blanking on a title. He may have a, 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 a thin title just called race is a fantastic one. Uh, I think John Hyams, uh, a, a book, um, uh, which came out in the fifties, uh, has really, uh, a, a, a stranger in the land has really, um, uh, has really, uh, held the test of time. It's a great study of, uh, the motivations um, uh, behind uh, nativism and the anti-immigration sentiment. Uh, a recent book that I think does a great job of explaining um, maybe not the mindset of racism, but how racism can become so respectable is Linda Gordon's book on the second Klan, uh, which just came out uh, last year, reviewed it for the nation. Um, uh, it's a great book. Uh, and it makes clear the way in which um uh, white supremacy um, um, can take root uh, simply by seeming wholly respectable uh, and, and wholesome in a lot of ways. So we don't think of the Klan this way, but, but the Klan of the 1920s was one that, you know, would appear in churches, would, you know, through carnivals and festivals, uh, you know, Ferris wheels filled with Klansmen, things like that. Uh, and, and what her book does is, is it really makes clear uh, uh, how once it receives this stamp of respectability uh, that these, uh, these these racist organizations uh, can really flourish. It's a very dangerous moment. Do you think there's something unique about white supremacy and racism in the United States in comparison to nativism and racism in other countries in the world? That's a good question. Uh, 
I don't think so. I mean, I think we've had enough comparative studies to know that there are similarities and differences. There's been a lot of great work on uh, the connections between, say, Southern segregation and anti-immigration and and what the Germans, uh, what Nazis pick up from that. Uh, there have been enough uh, comparative studies uh, between uh, South African apartheid uh, and uh, segregation and discrimination in America uh, to know that there's nothing uh, entirely unique about what uh, goes on in America. We like to think of ourselves as exceptional in a lot of ways, uh, our, our, our racism uh, is unexceptional. Now, jumping away from the book for a second uh, to your Twitter feed, um, one person you've debated quite consistently over the last year or two is Dinesh D'Souza. Can you tell me a bit about how you decided to take him on? There wasn't a, a conscious plan. It, it just His tweets kept popping up in my feed from other people responding to, to him. Um, uh, there was no one, you know, kind of, quoting him uh, approvingly. And uh, this was at a point in which I'd, I hadn't decided to take him on, but uh, but I, I'd, I'd grown into this role, as many other historians on, on Twitter thankfully have, of realizing that we have a duty uh, to correct um, uh, falsehoods. Uh, and whether they're uh, inadvertent mistakes made by journalists, uh, hopefully inadvertent, or whether they are um, uh, deliberate um, lies being pushed by uh, by partisans and conmen, uh, that that we have a duty to push back against them. And so uh, he was at this time uh, one of the ones making the most uh, egregious claims uh, about things that I'd studied and written on uh, uh, for for decades. Uh, that it became inevitable that I, uh, I I had to respond to him. Do you find that students uh, coming into Princeton sometimes think of him as a reliable source? No, I've never had anyone think of him as a result. No, at least they haven't ad- admitted it to me. Um, uh, and this is, and this is again. I, I think we. I should underscore that uh, I have plenty of conservative students, uh, and and some of them are are uh, you know I have plenty of liberal students too, and some of them are great. Some of them are are, are not great students. Some of my conservative students are fantastic students. Um, the best student I had a couple of years ago, uh, I think, is now a. Uh, works at the Heritage Foundation. He was one of the most outspoken conservatives on campus, uh, and he he did the work. Uh, and he never would have brought um, a D'Souza uh, into the classroom. Uh, he had certain conservative uh, authors uh, I know he liked, and we would talk about in office hours uh, at great length. Uh, and I, I respected his, uh, his 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 point of view there. Um, uh, but uh, but no, I've never had a student come in uh, with with D'Souza. I, I think they can um, they can pretty easily see through the con. If you were to recommend some conservative historians to chapters of Young Republicans or any kind of conservative organizations, um, whom would you suggest they invite to campuses? In terms of conservative historians, uh, Don Cricklow uh, has done some uh, some some good work. It wrote a nice book on on Phyllis Schlafly, which I think is a story that um, uh, is a story that. Um, uh, uh, a lot of uh, conservatives don't know, but I think a lot of liberals don't know. Um, I've always recommended uh, Schlafly's story. If you don't know, Schlafly was the one who basically, she's on the cover of Fall right. Lines, in fact, uh, was the one who led the opposition to the ERA and was a brilliant political tactician. You don't have to agree with what she wanted to do, but the way she did it was just uh, incredibly brilliant and effective of lobbying these state houses and realizing that was the real pivot point for this debate. Liberals were all focused on the national issue. And what Don shows in this book is how she mobilizes a certain new image of family values to uh, derail what it seemed like an, like a gimme 
the equal rights amendment was sure to pass, everyone thought. And she stops at dead in, in, in the tracks with some really effective organizing. Uh, another good one uh, would be uh, uh, Jeff Cabaservice. Uh, I may be mispronouncing his name. I've only seen it in print. I apologize if I am. Uh, who has written a, a great deal on the Republican Party, um, uh, and he is a, a conservative himself, uh, and I think with, with great insight. Can you tell me a bit about what you have next on the agenda now that this book is coming out in January? Yeah, so my next project is I'm doing a study of, of John Doerr. And his name is spelled D-O-A-R. And Doerr was the point man uh, for the Kennedy and Johnson administrations on civil rights. And he really is, he's like, uh, um, he's like the Forrest Gump uh, of, of the civil rights era, except he's uh, not an imbecile. Uh, he's on the ground at, at virtually every major event. He's there when uh, Ole Miss is integrated. He spends the night with James Meredith in his dorm room. He's there when George Wallace has the sand of a schoolhouse door. Uh, he prosecutes the Mississippi burning uh, murders. He, um, uh, he marches ahead of the Selma to Montgomery march. He helps write the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. He, so he's all over these major flashpoints of the civil rights era. Uh, and he is this uh, juncture point between the federal government and grassroots organizers on the ground. Uh, and so uh, uh, his papers have never before been accessed. There are about 230 giant banker's boxes full of material that I've been going through the last uh, year or so. And just the level of detail alone that uh, this project's gonna uh, gonna give me on things that we thought we knew everything about, like Ole Miss or Selma, is really gonna be remarkable. But what I'm really excited about is that because he sits at this point between the federal government and the local movement, it's just really gonna let me interrogate uh, the connections between the national and the local. Uh, as you know, there's long been a, a debate uh, among historians, but the general public at large, about who really ultimately deserves the most credit for the civil rights changes. In the 2008 primaries, this was kind of memorably captured when Obama said Martin Luther King was the one who deserved most of the credit. Hillary Clinton said, no, LBJ was really more important. Uh, and the truth is really, uh, as historians will often tell you, it's a little of both. And so what Doerr is going to let me do is really to suss out where um, uh, individual responsibility lays, but also to understand more importantly the way in which power flew uh, and flowed between uh, these different uh, 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 places, between the federal, state, and local level, between grassroots activists and government agents uh, in DC, and to think about how all these parts really fit together and how they really operated. So I'm I'm really excited about that project. Was he also involved with policies related to affirmative action and diversity? Uh, I haven't gotten to that part yet. He, he resigns in 67. So I think it's right when the affirmative a, uh, action policies of the Johnson administration are taking root. Uh, so he's he's out of government in 67. He comes back in actually uh, during Watergate. He's a, he's a counsel to the, to the, um, uh, the House Judiciary Committee uh, during Watergate. Uh, but he's not really there for the real formative years of affirmative action policy. All right. Well, that about wraps it up. Do you have any closing words before we wrap up? I think we've said it all. This is fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us on the show. It was my pleasure. Fault Lines comes out in Kindle and hardcover editions on January 9th, 2019. You can follow Kevin Cruz on Twitter at Kevin M. Cruz, and you can find links to the books that we discussed in today's show notes. My next episode features Chad Wellman, professor at the University of Virginia, He's a historian of intellectual thought, and we'll be talking about his recent essay in which he responds to Jonathan Haidt's assertion that universities must choose between one telos, truth, or social justice. 
If you have any comments about today's episode, you can contact me at podcast at heterodoxacademy.org or tag me on Twitter at chrismartin76. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at HDX Academy, and on Facebook.